on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's our theme verse for the Bible line. God calls us to learn his word, and that's what we're about in the next hour. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning the word of God, the Bible. If there's an issue you're struggling with, a passage you're hoping to understand more fully, or some particular issue you're facing in your personal life that you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, all you need to do is call us again locally. The phone number is 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877-WAGP. The call letters WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. TBL is the email address. TBL for the Bible line. TBL at WAGP dot net. Uh, when you call, you can go on the air live. Or if you're more comfortable, you can call and just give the receptionist a dictated question. And we'll be happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Indeed, Pastor. We've got a number of uh, questions that have already been uh, submitted. Uh, Jason from College Station, Texas, writes in Exodus 9, uh, verse 12, after the plague on livestock, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Again, in Exodus 14, 4, God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart in order to make him pursue the Israelites. This language makes it sound like God made Pharaoh commit his actions against the Israelites. So is God to blame and accountable for Pharaoh's actions due to God hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Well, it's a good question. So I've turned there. Let me read to you from Romans, the ninth chapter. It's an interesting chapter of scripture, and it's often misunderstood. But before we go to that, we're going to go to this live caller who's waiting, and then we'll go to this question next. Go ahead, Rick. Indeed, we do have a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, are you there? All right. Well, a call back if you'd like. I'm sorry. And maybe uh, oh, we'll try it again. Go ahead. It's on our yes, end. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, thanks for calling today. How can we be, be of help? Good morning, Dr. Brogan. Good morning. Uh, I was calling pertaining to... Uh, caller, can you turn your volume down on your radio, please? Okay, how about now? Yeah, that's good. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm calling about um, the book of Acts, chapter 9. Okay. We have been discussing this in all our Bible study class, and I wanted to know, could you clarify, when did Paul actually believe in Christ? Well, it's and I a, want to hang up and I'm going to listen to it. Yeah, it, it's a really good question uh, when Paul actually came to faith. We, we know a couple of things, putting the accounts together. Of course, his testimony in one form or another is given in three places in the Acts. And here in Acts 9, of course, he's on the road to Damascus to uh, deal with believers, true born-again Christians, to continue the persecuting process. 
And it came about as uh, he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you've persecuted, but rise and enter the city and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground and Though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And of course, uh, the Lord appeared to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am. And the Lord said, arise and go to the street called straight and inquire of the house at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him that he might regain sight. And Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've, I've heard for many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority to, from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. And the Lord said, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. And of course, Ananias departed. He laid hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight. Now, you have to put this account together with another event that um, Paul relates uh, when he shares his testimony uh, and it's found in Acts, the 22nd chapter. And of course, uh, here in one respect, uh, it's, it's a more full account uh, in terms of some of the finer points. And let me read portions of it. Uh, having just read the largest portion, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what, what shall I do, Lord? And he said, arise, go to Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed you to do. And of course, he, he does precisely that. And uh, we are told, and it came about, I returned to Jerusalem and was praying. And uh, well, I won't go there. But in either case, it says uh, in verse 12, and a certain man, Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by the Jews lived there, came to me and standing near me said, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's a very important verse in understanding this whole thing. So a couple of things. First of all, when Paul writes to the church of Galatians, sometimes when God gives a biographical account, he doesn't fill in every detail in one place. Sometimes you will read the scripture and say, Hmm, that's interesting. And then you read a later account about the same event or some divine commentary that the spirit of God gives in more details are filled in. For instance, Abraham, you don't know from the Genesis account, you can assume it because he's a prophet of God and the prophets of the old Testament are given the gospel, you know, prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus, all the prophets spoke of him. Peter says in acts, 
uh, but you don't know that he had the plan of salvation, the gospel preached to him, except from the account that you have in Genesis. And so there was more than he just looked up in the sky and saw the stars, and yet he believed that his descendants would be just like a lot of stars, you know, countless number, like the sands of the seashore. No, his, his faith was much more definitive than that. And we know that from the Spirit's account of that event in in, Acts cha- in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, even so, when you read the book of Galatians, Paul definitively says that he received the gospel from no man, but that um, God had given him the gospel directly, which tells me right off, <coughs> excuse me, that Ananias did not give the Apostle Paul the plan of salvation because it's specifically highlighted in the book of Galatians that Paul directly um, received a revelation from the Lord Jesus concerning the gospel that no man gave it to him. So then the question becomes, well, when did he actually respond to that message? When did he actually believe? And that's the essence of your question. Well, some people would say he believed on the, um, uh, on the road to Damascus uh, when he said, Lord, who are you? Um, and I think they tend to lean towards that view in light of some things that are recorded in Acts 22. They don't want to be guilty of the church of Christ and the Christian church denomination and disciples of Christ denominations that love to use Acts 22 to teach baptismal regeneration, that baptism is necessary to salvation. And until you're baptized, you cannot be saved. Um, I believe what took place is, again, on the Damascus Road, in light of what we read in the Galatian epistle, that the Lord Jesus gave Paul directly the message of salvation. Paul knew what the Old Testament scriptures taught concerning Messiah. Uh, Throughout, of course, his ministry, he reasons from the scriptures that Jesus is Christ. So he knew certain truths concerning Messiah. He was uh, studied in the school of Gamaliel, Uh, He had studied the scriptures in great depth. What he took issue with was that Jesus was the Messiah. And so um, when, of course, uh, the Lord Jesus directly appealed to him, he gave him, in essence, the good news. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. I am the fulfillment. And so in that sense, Galatians, in one respect, is not nothing, anything new. It's just affirming what we read in the Acts account in giving further definition to it. So he goes into a period of darkness for three days. Of course, uh, there was some confusion in terms of modification uh, in the English text, but there's no confusion in the Greek text. Make haste, uh, excuse me, um, let me read it again. In, uh, in why delay, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In the Greek New Testament, wash away your sins is modified by the phrase calling on his name, not baptism. Baptism has no power to wash away sins. So I believe what took place is that Paul heard the gospel uh, definitively from Jesus himself, because when Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road, he realized that the one that he had been persecuting was Messiah. And so in that respect, he can say in the Galatians that he received the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus. No man gave it to him. Jesus gave it to him there on the Damascus road. Of course, he goes into a a time of contemplation. And isn't it appropriate that he can't see for a number of days? 
uh, that really causes you to think. And he's in total darkness. And the Spirit of God is working in his heart, and he's putting things together from what he heard on the Damascus Road. The only thing that's really left for him to do is to call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So he received the gospel from Christ, just like I might share the gospel with an unbeliever. But I can't make the decision for the unbeliever. That person has to personally call upon the name of Christ. So I take it that in Ananias' house, not because of the message that Ananias gave, but Ananias becomes the instrument of the Spirit of God to say, go ahead, make your decision. And of course, he calls upon the name of the Lord that his sin might be washed away. And of course, as you see in other passages, as Paul will later write in Ephesians, you, after hearing the message of truth, having believed, you received uh, the spirit of promise. Ephesians 1, 13 uh, through 15. And he's given us our pledge. So you hear the message, you believe the message, and then you receive the spirit of God. And I think that's what took place in Ananias' house. Paul was not given the gospel by Ananias. And I want to underscore that. Again, he affirms in Galatians, and that dovetails perfectly with the Acts. He received it from Christ himself. And, uh, but he makes that decision in his heart to call upon the name of the Lord. And when he does, immediately the scales are falling from his eyes. He, he sees not just physically, he sees clearly spiritually because he becomes a temple of the Spirit of God, just as Christ promised in, in Acts chapter 9. So I take it that the actual conversion place where he crossed the line into the kingdom was in Ananias' house. A lot of people want to shy away from that in light of those who use Acts 22 to teach baptismal regeneration. But I have, uh, I have no problem with understanding these passages together. It's a great question. You might want to go and listen to my sermon on Acts 22. I preach through the book of Acts chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, let's go back to that question about whether uh, God actually caused uh, Pharaoh's heart to harden all and right. and so Let me just turn there. Uh, did all of those things or whether Pharaoh did it on his own. All right. So here in Romans uh, 9 and verse 18 it says so he will have mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And of course, he's dealing here with um, the people of Israel. What's unfortunate is sometimes people take 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, and they apply it to personal election, when the thrust and focus is national election. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Where does that come from? It comes from Genesis, two nations are in your womb, and God chose one nation over another. And so the thrust of Romans 9 is not personal election. It's national election. In every example, in every Old Testament quote, when you go back and read it in its historical context, that is the thrust. But some people read, you know, Romans 9, 18, and they say, oh, poor old Pharaoh, you know, he didn't have a chance. He's just a pawn in the hand of God, you know, in the chessboard of life. And, and God set him up so he can knock him down and he could, you know, never believe. And God hardened his heart so that he could go to hell. And that's what some people think, that Pharaoh had no choice. And they say it's equally true that God, you know, predestines other people to have a soft heart or at least to turn their heart soft. And I would say if you believe that, you know, uh, <laughs> your thinking is a little bit distorted. Uh, certainly God is the initiator in salvation. There is none who seeks God, no, not one. And so Jesus can say, no man can come to the father unless the father draws him. 
Um, but they say, you know, if God chose you to have a soft heart, then you're going to heaven because you'll end up believing in Jesus. And if God chose you to have a hard heart, um, you'll end up going to hell because you'll end up rejecting Jesus. And again, I'd say if you believe that, you've got a soft head. That's not what the text teaches. Uh, if you go back to Exodus 7 and verse 14, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is related to his not letting the people go. Uh, so uh, not so that he would be eternally damned. He's dealing with the people of Israel. And as much as, you know, hardness of heart can certainly lead someone to eternal damnation of the soul. In the context, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart deals with the deliverance of his elect nation out of Egypt. Um, it's a picture of what you read in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it in whatever direction that he wishes. And so God's not glorified, you know, in, in the rebellion of Pharaoh. Uh, he was glorified in the delivering of his people when he brought them out with a mighty hand. And he said he did all this, as Paul quotes here in Romans, that his name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Um, so when you go back and you read the Exodus account, it, it's really interesting. And I won't take the time to do it, but you might want to listen to my sermon on Romans 9 when it comes up. We're way off. Well, what chapter are we in right now? Like Exodus, I mean, Romans, what, uh, 4 or 5? Or the latter half of 4. Yeah, so we're in the latter half of 4. So it's some months away. But if you're listening to Search the Scriptures, we're going through verse by verse uh, those messages. But you can go online and uh, it's posted there and listen to it. Um, but if you go back and you read those chapters, Exodus chapters 3 through 10 carefully, you're going to discover the very first two references to God's hardening Pharaoh's heart were just prophecies that he's going to do it. So God hasn't done it. He's just prophesying that he's going to do it. And then in the next seven references that you read, Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart before God has said to have hardened it. So seven times over, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it's only in response to that, in fulfillment of a prophecy that God made, because God knew the future. He wasn't a pawn. He knew the future, and he knew what Pharaoh was going to do first. Then in response, God, God himself hardened his heart. So God's first hardening doesn't come until after the sixth plague, the plague of boils. And it's only because Pharaoh first hardened his heart each time. So anyway, I hope that helps and I hope that answers it. Um, it does not mitigate against free will in the least bit. Um, it has everything to do with uh, Pharaoh's response. And of course, um, his response towards God in the general revelation he'd received and even the specific revelation he had seen in, in the divine judgments that came upon the people of Egypt uh, should have been enough to um, cause him to repent, but it didn't. He only uh, turned in wickedness away from the living God. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we had two questions come in on tithing, so I've kind of combined them. Okay. First, uh, this one listener would like to know, if you don't tithe, can you become cursed, or did Christ's death and blood cover that curse? And then the second uh, also, please explain the difference between giving and tithing. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, well, uh, there are certainly people who use the word tithing in a loose sense. Uh, they say, well, uh, here's what I'm giving to the Lord today. And they say, here's my tithe. And they, you know, put $10 in the offering plate. 
Well, if they're increased that week, if they made $100, then they would be accurate in using that term to say my tithe is $10. But if they made $300 that week, then a tithe would be $30. And 10% in 10% of 300 is is 30. Um the term tithe is a mathematical term in both Greek and in Hebrew both in and outside of the Bible to this very day. And so it means 10%. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to understand that because the first instance of tithing ever before Moses gave the law is found in the book of Genesis when Melchizedek is given from Abraham a tenth of all that he had. Uh, So it says he gave a tithe and he gave a tenth of all that he had. In Hebrews 7, that recounts that Old Testament (laughs) event affirms this is the exact same truth. So a tithe means a tenth. So um, somebody makes $100 and they give a dollar to the Lord. Have they obeyed God? No, they haven't. Partial obedience is disobedience to God. And you can rationalize it all you want, but partial obedience is disobedience to God. And so when God spells out tithing in the second part of your question here in from the book of Malachi chapter three, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now. And this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. There's only a few times in all the Bible where God actually invites someone to test him. Typically to test God is to disobey God because it's the opposite of faith. Um, You shall not test the Lord thy God, Jesus quoted to Satan there amongst those temptations. Uh, But there are times when God, two times in the Bible, when God invites someone to test him. This is one of those instances. And really it's an act of faith to take God at his word and with the tithe. And he speaks of tithes and offerings. Um, because giving is not simply an issue of percentages. It is ultimately an issue of the heart. It's not a 90-10% relationship. That 90% of it is mine, and 10% of it is God's. No, it's all God's, and I'm the steward of it. And someday I'll give an account for how I used all 100% of what he entrusted to me. So it begins with the tithe, and there are people today who want to manipulate tithing to try to discourage you from doing it, to say that it has no new covenant application. They'll say, well, the tithe wasn't 13%, was not 10%, but 13%, or it wasn't 13%, but 23%, and, and they look at some other instances of tithing that God gives, and they confuse the passages, and they conflate them together. It is true, for instance, that every third year, the way the tithe was going to be distributed changed in reference to the alien in the land and to the widow. But uh, the, the percentage did not change. And people want to tell you, well, if you want to tithe, give 23%, don't give 10%. If you want to study this in detail, and I walk through it very carefully in the course that is at searchthescriptures.org that will tell you what the Bible really says about money we look at uh, what the Bible says about stewardship, what the Bible says about saving, what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about debt, what the Bible says about investing, what the Bible says about 
planning or budgeting, we might say, and we bring all of those principles together. And unfortunately, there are Christians who say, well, I tried to tithe and God didn't bless it. Well, he doesn't bless you when there's other areas of disobedience and rebellion in your life. And tithing is not some silver bullet as some pastors have made it. It works in conjunction with the other principles that God has given. So you give 10% and then you go out and live beyond your means. God gives you $50,000 to live on, but you decide you're going to spend 70 that year. You can't expect God to uh, just bless your financial picture because you disobeyed. Um, and you basically said, I'm not satisfied with the 50000 you gave me. I want to spend money I haven't yet earned, and I'm going to do it now. Um, again, these principles all work in conjunction with one another, and that's why I think this course is so important. Um, and the promise, in addition, says, then I will rebuke the devourer so that he may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations, the unbelievers, the, the, the goyim, the Gentiles, will call you blessed because you're a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So our, our financial picture should really be a testimony to the nations, to the unbelievers. The word here is used synonymous with unbelievers. The goyim, just like Jesus said, don't pray like the Gentiles. He's not talking there just about non-Jews. He's, he's speaking, uh, he's using the word interchangeably with a pagan. In fact, some of the newer translations say pagan, but technically it says Gentiles, but that's the understanding in the context. And many of us have a very poor testimony with an unbelieving world. They look at our financial picture and they don't see God's blessing over it. They see a mess and we're no different from they are. And so we lose our testimony. But when he says you are cursed with a curse, because you're robbing me. Um, understand there is no condemnation in Christ, but there is discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And that's the thrust that goes through Malachi. He continually highlights these different sins. You say this, but let me tell you what God says. And he does that all the way through Malachi. And he goes through these different cycles of rebellion, whether it's the kind of offering they made with the animals they presented to God or or the kind of commitment they had to their marriage, or whatever it was. And it invited the divine discipline of God. And so that's really what he's dealing with when he says you're cursed with a curse. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And sometimes we think of uh, discipline as, oh, just kind of flippant. Uh, Listen, it's very serious to come under the discipline of God. And it's like a rheostat that it is turned up when God's people sit in Uh, brood in their rebellion and God increases the discipline to get our attention. And many times he does that with money because he knows he has our attention. So don't listen to these pastors today who say tithing is not for today. They're wrong. They're wrong. And again, again, as a general principle, if it's new, it's not true. And for 1900 years of church history, no one thought that tithing was just some old Testament thing that had no application to the church. Certainly, the New Testament highlights um, that we have a greater motivation because we've seen the full revelation of Messiah under the new covenant that they didn't have. We have the full witness that Messiah, who is rich, became poor, uh, spiritually speaking, by humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross, that we might become rich, not financially, as the prosperity theologians misquote the text, but that we might become rich spiritually. And indeed we have, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul says to the church at Ephesus. 
Uh, but we have a, even a higher motivation uh, to give um, beyond what Old Covenant Saints gave. Anyway, that's a great question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a caller who's patiently waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Rick. Yes, how can we help? That's a, that's a tough question to follow, and it, it might seem a little picayune, but I don't know if you've watched any of the new miniseries A.D. about the book of Acts, and I know that Dr. Jeremiah has given it his stamp of approval. And again, it, it may seem picayune, but I, I, I have a, a difficult time with this particular story, taking things out of chronological events, such as at the resurrection, um, having... Peter and Simon of Cyrene come to the tomb, and then later having Mary, you know, meet Jesus there at the tomb. Um, to me, it just it sends a message to people who have not read the Bible, people who are not yet saved. That you know, it it, it just it just sends a false narrative, in my opinion. And I just I just wanted your thoughts on that. Now, before you hang up, when you say they had, I, I've not seen the miniseries, but you say they had Simon of Cyrene or Joseph of Arimathea in Nicodemus. No, it, was, it was Simon of Cyrene. Well, yeah, obviously that's not in the text. And uh, it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who are involved in the retrieval of the body. Uh, Simon of Cyrene has nothing to do with that. And um, again, I've not seen this series, but no, I, I don't like it when... Hollywood takes freedoms with the text that they shouldn't. And so, um, again, I've not seen it, so I really can't comment on it directly. But I would just say as a general principle, um, you know, obviously, if there's a film that's being made on the Bible, I like it to be accurate. And does that mean it's totally bad? Well, no, certainly not. You know, the, the Passion of the Christ that was done you know, by Mel Gibson, a Roman Catholic. Uh, he had a lot of accurate things in there, but he had some gross inaccuracies too. They were just wrong. Um, did I um, sit there and harp on the fact that there were some scenes that just were not correct? No, I used it as a springboard to talk to unbelievers about Christ. But again, if I'm producing a movie, I don't want to uh, alter God's word and certainly don't want to confuse it or, or to add things to it, you know, to make it more interesting. Uh, it doesn't need any flavoring. It doesn't need any condiments. The Word of God is sufficient just the way it is, and I don't need to dress it up to make it more interesting, as many times Hollywood does. But again, I, I'd rather not comment directly because I haven't seen it, and uh, I don't like to do anything secondhand, though, as much as I'm sure you're accurate in what you've said. But I have to see it before I can give a definitive uh, comment. Let's go to the next question. Indeed, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener would like to know why some people are so dogmatic about using the King James Version only. And do you have a message or a series that this listener can listen to that would help her explain to a friend why other versions are acceptable? Well, it's, it's an excellent question, and there are certainly some people, almost in a cultish sense, uh, telling you that the King James Bible is the only Bible, and some so much so that they would say that you can't get saved apart from the King James translation of the Bible. I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous where some people go with this. They would say that only the King James is the pure word of God, and therefore you cannot get saved apart from the King James Bible. 
when the translation was done and issued by King James, and some people want to attack his character to make the translators, you know, less than uh, orthodox, but it has nothing to do with that. Uh, there are other issues, I think, that maybe motivated King James, not necessarily his Christianity. But in either case, the translators did an excellent job. And when you read the preface of the first edition of the King James uh, 1611 Bible, in the preface itself, they will tell you that there were a lot of words that they were uncertain as to their meaning. You have to understand that during the Middle Ages, a lot of people in the church uh, lost their ability to interact in the original languages of Scripture. So you have people during the Protestant Reformation who are going to Jewish rabbis who were not saved, but they knew Hebrew and teaching Christians, born-again Christians, how to read Hebrew and learn the language. And so when the King James Version comes uh, online, Uh, In 1611, they write in the preface that they were still very much in a learning process, that there were some words that they were uncertain of. Now, most people who are King James people only won't tell you that, nor will they tell you that when the first edition was printed, the 1611 edition, the translation committee went back to work, and several months later, before 1611 ended, another 1611 version came out. Uh, with some changes in it because they had discovered in the interim uh, some more, uh, some some issues that shed light on the meaning of certain Hebrew words and certain Greek words that, you know, they were attempting to, to translate. And so the goal of a translator is to take a word in the original language and to put it accurately and as precisely as you can in the receptor tongue. But to say that the King James Version is the only translation of the Bible is absolutely absurd because the majority text in which it is based on is not the single basis of most Bible translations that are done around the world. And so the Bible is being translated and has been translated into thousands of languages. There's over, you know, 7,000 known tongues that the Bible needs to be translated into. And in some tongues, just a portion of the Bible has been done and some, the entire scripture uh, and some, uh, they don't have a translation, but they have record players that give the gospel or they have picture books. And uh, because sometimes the people are not literate, but God gets his gospel one way or another out there. But yes, I have done something that I think you would find helpful. I taught a course on bibliology. And it was Bibliology, Biblios book, the doctrine of the Bible is what Bibliology is. And so there are major facets of Christian theology. We speak of Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ, or pneumatology, pneumatos, uh, the doctrine of the spirit, or eschatology, from the Greek word eschatos, the doctrine of last things, or ecclesiology, from ecclesia, Uh, the called out ones, the church, the doctrine of the church. And so bibliology is the doctrine of the Bible. It's not for the faint hearted. I taught each of the courses that I have done so far on a master's level. But if you want to go to search the scriptures.org and click on section number six 
I do an evaluation of English translations. And if I remember right now, Rick, I think this is playing on WAGP, the Bibliology course. Indeed it is, Thursdays at 11. And what section are we in right now of that course? Oh, gosh. it's uh, The 10th episode will be um, uh, airing right now this Thursday. So let me take a quick look right. and see what so, that is. But if you go to section number 6... And you can go to call search the scriptures. You can get the whole course if you want. Again, it's not for the faint of heart. It's several hundred pages. But I go through each English translation. The challenge that we have, and it's a unique challenge to English-speaking people, especially to Americans. I go to most countries of the world. In most countries that I travel to only have one translation of the Bible. Uh, A few countries have maybe two uh, or on rare occasions three. We actually have over 200 different English translations that are available. Now, most people aren't aware of that. They're aware, aware of the top 10 or 15 that are you know, readily marketable and uh, you, know, you can buy in the local Christian bookstore. But there are over 200 English translations that are done. But I go through the major ones, and it is true. There are some that translate with a different philosophy of translation. And so the King James did, like the Geneva Bible, as much as they could, a literal translation. Um, No translation is totally literal, except maybe an interlinear Bible, uh, because in Greek, for instance, the words are structured differently, where you might have the verb as the first word in the sentence. We don't do that in English. We go subject, verb, object. But in Greek, sometimes the verb is the first word, and word order changes for emphasis, and Uh, But as best you can, they made it readable and literal. There are other translations, instead of doing a word-for-word kind of translation, they do thought-for-thought. That would be the NIV. Uh, It's less precise, more paraphrasing going on. And the NIV 84 came out, and more recently, the NIV 2010 came out in paper in 2011. Uh, And unfortunately, that was a combination of the TNIV, today's New International Version, it was kind of a gender-neutral Bible with the uh, 2010 uh, version of the NIV. It took 75% of the issues uh, that were gender-sensitive, as they said, and they brought them into the new NIV. So people who've used the NIV for a long time and, oh, my copy's worn out and I want to go get a new one, they're actually getting kind of a combination of the old one with the TNIV, which is not actually good in my view because they altered to make it gender sensitive, what God said. So they took singular pronouns, he, and they made them they. Why? Well, we don't want to be, you know, too masculine. Um, And that's not healthy. So it is true there are some translations that are better than others. So usually if you hear me quote the NIV, I'll say NIV 84 now. Not in older sermons when that was not an issue, but in newer sermons I'll say in the NIV 84 it says, and and sometimes I'll, I'll quote it only if it sheds light, but... With that said, God is still sovereign. God is in control. God is on his throne. God knows what he's about. And we can rest in his assurance that even some of the translations that are not as faithful, say, as the New American Standard or whatever, they still are nonetheless, um, for the most part, true to what God has said, and we're dealing with small issues. All right, let's go to the next caller, Rick. All right, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning. Yeah, thanks the for calling. About fasting. I know we are to fast as Christians, but um, when should you fast? 
Well, it's a good question. Um, God, under the new covenant, does not regulate fasting in terms of how often you should do it or um, when you should do it. He does assume that you will do it. Uh, There was one prescribed fast in the Old Testament, but under the new covenant, um, God says, and whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, not if, but when, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your father who sees in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. So Jesus, in contrast to the righteousness that the Pharisees displayed, that's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the God of it is found in, in Matthew 5 where he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 520, uh, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. And then he takes apart their so-called righteousness and he reveals it for what it really is, which is unrighteousness. So they did three things, especially to be seen by men, their giving, their praying, their fasting. Now Jesus does not negate the public expression of those three things. But he does affirm that there are some things that need to be done in private. Um, so even, you know, you see both playing off like in prayer. He says, go into your, you know, inner room. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And and your father who sees in secret, you know, he'll uh, he'll repay you accordingly. Uh, but then he'll speak when you pray, pray, not my father who's in heaven, but our father. There's corporate prayer. And so with each of these three things, you see a public expression. So for instance, with fasting, you see the exhortation to to fast alone, but then you see the exhortation to fast publicly in Acts 13, where the church leadership gathers and they fast. You see the whole church fasting. You see uh, a private expression of giving that's taught not to congratulate yourself and for others to say, oh, isn't he generous or isn't he spiritual? Uh, And so we don't, you know, take our tithe offering and let the person next to us see how much we've given, you know, maybe above the tithe and the offering or that we're even tithing, giving 10%. Uh, But then there is the public expression of giving. So you see, for instance, God in Acts 4 and 5 dealing with uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Barnabas. So there is a place to give publicly. And so in all three, you see private prayer, you see public prayer as an X four. How often should you fast? God doesn't say, I suppose in one sense you fast every day. You say, how so faster? Well, we call the first meal of the day breakfast. Um, we're taking a break from fasting from when we ate our last meal and slept the night. Uh, that's not really fasting, but, uh, it's a play on words, but that's where the word comes from. Uh, in like manner, there are times when God would call you to skip a meal or maybe to fast for 24 hours. Maybe you'll eat breakfast today and you won't eat again until breakfast the next day. Certainly there are times when the Christian, unless they are physically unable. And again, um, you know, some people, if they skip a meal, they're in trouble physically. And I, and I understand that and God understands that. And so God takes all that into account, but most Christians are able to fast. In fact, a lot of Christians would really benefit from fasting. A couple came up to me on Sunday and they have a major decision. I said, well, first of all, I think you should fast and pray about this, this young couple. 
And they said, you know, that's funny you mentioned that. We're talking about that coming into church today. I said, well, you know, I said, I never, ever make a major decision without spending some time in fasting and praying. And I think fasting should be a regular part of the Christian's life. I'm not going to tell you how often I do it, if I do it once a week or once a quarter or once a month, but I think it should be a part of the Christian's life and in part of earnestly seeking God. Some of you have a wayward son or daughter and you need to fast and pray over that. Some of you are struggling in your marriages and it's on edge and you need to fast and pray over that. Some of you have a major decision about whether to move your family to a new city and take a new job. And you shouldn't just say, well, they're giving me a pay raise and then I should, so I should go. It might be detrimental for your family and God might show you that. And so when you fast and number one, you have more time to pray because the time taken to go to the restaurant, order the food, get it, or to make it, eat it, clean it up. You have more time to pray. And then those hunger pains that come become a reminder. So people who haven't done it before, you know, sometimes just to skip a meal. I mean, they're just like killing themselves. But, you know, you start and you watch God work. And it's amazing how uh, he will lead you. Anyway, great question. You might want to, um, uh, I think I preached a sermon on it in our series in Acts. So if this caller wants to go to Acts 13, where there we find the church in fasting and praying, I will go ahead and I think I taught on that passage. If I remember correctly, go to search scriptures.org, click on Acts. You'll see about uh, 40 or 50 sermons I preached in the book of Acts and click on Acts 13, the first four verses, make sure that's included in that presentation. And, uh, and I'll talk about personal fasting while I was at it. All right, let's go to another question. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy and Rick. Um, my question has to do uh, with Jonathan Kahn. Uh, last year, um, we had read his book, The Mystery of the Shemitah, and it turns out that we have a friend who is a personal friend of Jonathan Kahn, and our friend is a believer himself, and sent us uh, Jonathan Kahn's uh, new DVD, The Mystery of the Shemitah Unlocked, which we've watched and then I also understand from somebody at the church that recently um, Jonathan Kahn was on the uh, our radio station. So I wondered if you had read it, and what you, were your thoughts about uh, Jonathan Kahn as a Messianic Jew? Well, um, let me just say I, I uh, heard a clip on it because Rick sent it to me because uh, someone had called and asked about it. Um, and, uh, he asked me if I had, or we're in a discussion actually about the stock market one day is what it was. And, and he said, well, have you read, you know, Jonathan, you know, Khan's book? And I said, well, no, I haven't. And uh, so he sent me a clip and I listened to the clip, uh, where he was being interviewed by James Dobson. And of course, uh, in the book, he's calling for a date in September. What's the date, Rick? You should know because you're going to pull your money out of the stock market well, the day before. <laughs> I'm actually pulling it out a little bit sooner than that just to cover my base and uh, just to you know, be on the safe side. Uh, but uh, he, it's supposed to be after the third or the fourth blood moon, uh, which I think is going to be sometime in September of this You know, this, year. this stuff sells books. It sells books, but, you know, he, he's unlocking a 3,000-year-old mystery. And uh, he, he unlocks for us a secret, a secret. Look, when, when, when people typically market something as a secret, 
that they are unlocking. Um, you know, that kind of stuff sells books, but I don't think it's accurate. There are no secrets in the Bible. Now, I would not be at all surprised if he raises enough hype in the country uh, that, you know, Christian people would say, oh, you know, Dr. Dobson had him on and wow, this could happen. And I'm going to pull all my money out of the stock market the day before and create a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, that could, that could easily happen. But do I believe that he has unlocked some mystery uh, concerning, you know, uh, an Old Testament feast and, uh, you know, this cycle on the Sabbath year and every seventh year and interfacing it with some blood moon? That's absolute nonsense, absolute nonsense and i i don't think it's uh true and if it comes true it will simply be a self-fulfilling prophecy i think it's more like uh um what was it y2k uh that 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 happened now, you know i, I want to preface this by saying i'm right. not doing it because of blood I, I, I know you're we not. are overdue for a bubble burst uh, <laughs> that's it's been right. six years I, I agree i agree i i think we are overdue for a bubble burst and i think at some point you know, the American economy, unless someone does something dramatic in terms of leadership, we're reaching a, a, a point where we will not be able to uh, change our direction. You know, there's a place uh, on the uh, falls, uh, moving up towards Niagara Falls, and there's a certain point where if you reach it, uh, there's no hope for you. Uh, the current is so strong. I don't care how big an engine you got on your motorboat. You're in big trouble. You're going to go over the falls. And we're reaching that point financially. Some people put it at $22, 23000000000000 trillion. Um, we're at $18 trillion now. And it just continues to climb the debt. We are going to reach a point in America where we will not be able to service the debt unless we print more money. And if we continue on that path... Uh, printing more money, then we will ruin our economy and we'll have a Rwanda-type economy with hyperinflation and your, your money will be worthless. It's happened before. It happened in the 30s in Germany. You know that famous picture of the man with a wheelbarrow full of cash and he can only buy a loaf of bread with it. So uh, lay all that aside. I do think there's some uh, truth to the fact that we are facing a financial crisis, but I don't think it has anything to do with the mystery of the Shemitah. And uh, I, I just think he's he's wrong on that. But it, he'll 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 be the one who will make out because he'll make he'll make a million dollars in book sales. So anyway, and then he'll 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 retire somewhere. So all right, we've got a little more than four minutes and one caller left. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Doctor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, real quick, I was listening to Bob and Jerry Boyd on issues in education, and they had a guest on there. I think his name was Bill Weiss. He had a book called 23 Minutes in Hell. He claims to be a Christian and not died, but had, God gave him a vision that he was in hell, and he wrote a book. Now, I'm, you know, I don't believe in all that, but what do you uh, think about Christians who claim to go to either either heaven or hell? Again, uh, what they are doing is they're selling books, you know, and it's unfortunate that sometimes Christian leaders will put on their broadcasts people who promote this stuff, you know, whether it's a doctor who's, uh, 
had some outer body experience and said he went to heaven and how wonderful it was or or a pastor whose son went to heaven and he has to write about it or someone who dies and goes to hell and look the scriptures are sufficient you cannot add or subtract to the scripture not to mention the bible is very clear it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So people who say, well, I died and went to hell or I died and went to heaven. Now I want to write a book about it and tell you all about it. Well, if someone's naive enough to purchase the book, uh, shame on them. Uh, they need to read their Bible because everything we know about heaven that we can say is true or everything we know about hell that we can say about true is found in the 66 books of the Bible. What they are doing is no different from what the founder of Mormonism did where he comes up with some extra slot of revelation. Let me tell you what God showed me. It's no different, no different at all. Uh, So the Bible is very clear. Death happens just once and death in the truest sense happens not when your heart and lungs stop. Now, there's some people listening to me. They say, well, I died on the operating table. You didn't die. Now your heart and lungs stopped. And maybe they revived you. Maybe they revived you several times, but you didn't die. Because death, according to the book of James, takes place when the spirit departs from the body. Just as the body is dead without the spirit, so faith without works is dead, James says. And when the spirit departs, you are either going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's a fixed boundary between the two. So that can never, ever, 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 ever change. You can't come back and write a book about it. So that's bad theology and uh, shame on Christian leaders who let folks like that on their radio show. It makes for interesting broadcasting. It makes for dynamic preaching. But we need to preach the truth and stick to the word of God. One of the watchwords of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. That is scripture alone. And scripture alone is sufficient. We don't need things beyond the word of God to tell us spiritual truth. The Bible is sufficient in and of itself. Well, we're out of time today. There are several more questions that people emailed us to, but God willing, there'll be another day when uh, we can be back and open the word of God together. Let me encourage you to spend time in God's word. And if you're listening and you don't have a church home and you're living in a 50 mile radius of Beaufort County, I would love to invite you to Community Bible Church. We're one church meeting in two locations. Our Bluffton campus is on the border of Hilton Head and Bluffton, right there at the Bridge Center. Uh, You can see it. They meet at 11 o'clock here on our Buford campus. We meet at both 915 and 11 each Sunday. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for directions and for more details. Let me encourage you today to walk with Jesus Christ. (music) 